begin this morning by noting uh, simply that death was on my mind this week. And no, that's not because uh, last Sunday I celebrated another year around the sun and was one step closer on my pilgrimage to my final resting place. No, that wasn't that wasn't it solely. Uh, it, it, it wasn't even that I had some new health scare or anything like that uh, or new diagnosis. But nonetheless, death was on my mind this week. And it was because of a, a trip, a work trip that I took this week. Uh, Tabitha was able to join me. On that trip, it was to Washington, D.C. Tabitha had never been to Washington, D.C. before, and so we went, and around my work, I was taking a deposition there, um, we were able one night to go out and see the monuments. Now, it was very cold in D.C., at least for D.C. folks. There are wimps down there. Um, I know, I'm, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but it was in the 30s, the, you know, the low 30s, and it was snowing, and there was a lot going on, but one very clear night, cold night, this week, we went out, and it was, I don't know, 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, something like that, and we went down to see the monuments all lit up, and it was beautiful. And I'll, I remember as, as I went up, we went up to the Lincoln Memorial, and at that time of the night, hardly any crowds, it was cold, it was just this wonderful time we had walking around uh, D.C., asked, asked Tabitha how many miles she walked that particular day. And I went up to the Lincoln Memorial, and if you've been there, you know you've got Abraham Lincoln sitting there in that ch- on that chair, larger than life, and in marble and stone. And we just kind of looked at him for a little bit and took in the beauty. And then I turned around and went back downstairs, went back down the stairs. as And the Washington Memorial, you look as you're walking away from the Lincoln Memorial. And as I was there, I, I stopped, and I remembered that there was part of the Lincoln Memorial I, I hadn't gone and looked at. And if you're sitting at, and, and looking at the Lincoln Memorial, Lincoln sitting there in the statue, if you just turn this way, maybe if you've been there, you remember there's another wall. And I said, i got to go look at that. And I went up there, and I ran back up the stairs, and I went in there, and I just stopped. And it was the Gettysburg Address. The whole text of the Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago. Maybe the most famous speech given in American history. Very short, very short speech. It was commemorating the most deadly battle of the Civil War. And in these very moving words, Lincoln speaks about how we can't hallow this ground that was there at Gettysburg. Because he said these soldiers who died have hallowed it far beyond what we could do. But he said, here's what we can do. This is the Peter Magnuson paraphrase, far less powerful. You should just go read the text for yourself. But what he said is, he says, what we here resolve is that those men will not have died in vain, but rather that government of the people, by the people, and for the people shall not perish from the earth. And that, th- those words were weighing on me, these men who died and, and this speech that was commemorating them. And then as Tabitha and I went on, we stopped by the Korean War Memorial and these soldiers and statues commemorating the dead. My grandfather, wonderful man we called Bumpa, served in the Korean War overseas. And I reflected on all the names of those who had passed and the, the memory of, of people who had died a continent away. And then we went to the Vietnam War Memorial, and my father-in-law, John Burt, who's here with us this morning, served in that war, and I was talking with him this week about some of his friends who died in that 
war. And you, if you've been there, there are these uh, books that list every single Vietnam deceased soldier. And you can flip through those books and just see page upon page upon page upon page upon page. Tens of thousands of men who died in that conflict. And so this, this was just sitting heavy on me. And, and death has been a subject that, that I suspect for all of us we have a different approach to. There are some, maybe you, that don't even want to think about it, don't want to look at it, don't want to stare it in the face. The whole subject is just something you'd rather ignore. And there are others who can, on the other extreme, have a, have a kind of almost morbid curiosity with the subject. Well, me, as a pastor, I can't ignore it. I have seen more people die than I care to remember, giving comfort to those who are there. And there is something about death and, and watching someone die that, that as I get more, I guess, familiar with it, never becomes less sobering. Because there is in it such commonalities. As I think back to my life as a pastor, I think of, of the families that are, are gathered around part of watching this, this, this sobering event occur. I think of the person who is dying, and even as that person is unconscious, there is nonetheless a fight, a struggle to keep life, to hold on to life, the struggle to breathe and to continue on with the precious gift of life that God has given. And, and the weight of, of being in the room for so many of these deaths, it will never leave me. It has changed me forever. And this morning, that's why I want to come to what is the most significant death in all of human history. Because like I said, every death that I have seen as a pastor in providing ministry and comfort to the family has been similar. But this death is entirely unique. It is unlike any other death whether those that I have witnessed or whether those that have been sacrificed on on a battlefield of war or in a tragic accident or natural disaster of some kind, all of those have some forms of similarity, but this one is different. It is different because in a way that we can't fully understand on that cross, the Son of God died. That hymn that we sang this morning, And Can It Be, Isaac Watts, one of the most wonderful hymn writers, used the word that we didn't sing. It was a verse that was not in in that, that hymnal rendering, but it's this. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Let, let, Let that sink in for a moment. Isn't that a mystery? That the immortal dies? And as we come to this sacred ground this morning, and I say sacred because the Apostle Paul says, what is the gospel that I have delivered unto you? What is the good news that I have delivered unto you? It is first of all, he says, that Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture. What is the fundamental of our Christian faith? It is here that Jesus died. What I'd like to do this morning is to point out for you how completely unique this death was. So unique that a Roman centurion who had seen hundreds if not thousands of men die 
including on a cross, when he saw this man die, this hardened, this jaded military officer, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. The title of the message this morning is, The Son of God Dies. The Son of God Dies. And I will tell you this morning, my friends, you can't explain something that you don't fully understand, and I do not fully understand what happened on that day. I don't think God intends us or expects us to understand fully what happens that day. And so if you're coming here hoping that I'm going to unlock every mystery that you've had about that cross, you're going to leave disappointed. But what I do invite you to do, more than pursuing a perfect understanding or, or, or seeking a perfect explanation, I hope that at a minimum what you will come planning to do today is to worship, is to bow down your heart and accept and believe what is described here for us. And then before we leave, see how it applies to your life. We're going to look at three aspects of what made this death so unique, so utterly unlike any other death that has ever occurred. We're going to look first at the abandonment. We're going to look secondly at the acceptance. And we're going to look thirdly at the acknowledgement. The abandonment, the acceptance, and the acknowledgement. Let's start with the abandonment. And if you'll just pick up the text with me in Mark chapter 15 and verse 33, and we'll just work through these verses together to make sure we understand as best we can what Mark intends for us to see. Now notice in verse 33, before this, Jesus has been being mocked. He's been belittled. But we noted last week the irony that these people were mocking him and calling him, you're the Christ, the King of Israel, why don't you come down from that cross? And all the while, God is holding up a testimony, that's who he actually is. And these people, even in their blindness, morally and spiritually, even in their cruelty, they are testifying to the reality of who Jesus is. And now we pick it up in verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. You understand this mysterious darkness. This is mysterious darkness because it's at the sixth hour. Now, in this time, Mark likely would have been counting his days from 6 a.m. The day would start with the dawning, right right around 6 a.m. in that area of the world. And so 6 a.m. was when their day began. So what would the sixth hour be? High noon. High noon. Now, imagine in the heat of summer, in Minnesota, when our days are the longest. Imagine that at 12 p.m., the entire sky goes black. Would you consider that to be a mystery? Yes, I think you would. And that darkness were to continue for three hours. You say, how does Mark know? Well, do you remember the end of this passage? There were also women looking on afar off, among whom was Mary Magdalene. He goes and lists all these women that were watching because there were eyewitnesses there. And they told him. 
And they knew, and it was written down, and it was recorded for us. And so there is this mysterious, miraculous darkness. Now, some of you have, have been in a Minnesota storm in the summer. You know, when suddenly the sky goes dark and the clouds look ominous and it's the daytime, but it looks like the nighttime and suddenly there is a shade of green in the sky. You, you know that eeriness of darkness when it shouldn't be dark. And now imagine this. It is dark in the middle of the day for three hours. In fact, you'll see if you compare the other gospel accounts, Jesus doesn't utter one word during these three hours on the cross. Other words of Jesus are recorded when he speaks. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At the very end, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. At the very end, he says, it is finished. And he dies. For these three hours, not one word is recorded. Silence from the cross. Pitch black darkness. Wow, what would you have thought if you were there? Now, in trying to understand what this darkness signifies, what does this mean? Mark doesn't say. He just tells us it was dark. And the rest of Scripture doesn't explain this is what was happening in that darkness. And, and so different commentators have suggested different things. Some suggest that this was nature responding to the horror that the creator of nature, the creator of the world, was dying, was being mistreated like this. And just like we come to funerals and we wear black, the color of darkness, this was nature itself clothing itself in blackness, in darkness, to reflect the grief of what was happening to the Savior. Another idea is that this was God himself who was veiling, who was shrouding what was happening to his son on the cross. Oh yes, Jesus would die, but he would do so in this transaction in, in darkness. And this was God's way, if you will, of, of providing this kind of veil for his son. But there's another one. Both of those at least have some plausibility to me. But, but there's another one, I think, that if you think back to the Old Testament, makes even a little more sense. And it's this. In the book of Amos, in the book of Joel, in the book of other places, uh, in, in other books of the Bible, darkness is depicted as being part of what's called the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will be darkness, Amos says, and not light. And you say, well, what's, what's the significance of the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord in the Old Testament is, is, is the depiction of when God shows up. God appears on the scene. And what the Old Testament prophets said to the people of Israel is, I just want you to know, that's not going to be for your deliverance, it's going to be for your judgment. When God shows up on the scene, he's going to be judging your sin. He's going to be dealing with your wickedness. He's not going to be coming to rescue you like, hey, a day of light, a day of sunshine, a day of gladness. No, when God comes, he's coming to judge you. Now think about that picture. That the sky goes, grows dark for three hours as Jesus hangs on that cross. It's as if God is showing up on the scene and God has something to say with judgment. Or the other picture, Old Testament picture of darkness. Do you remember 
at this season of Passover, how the Israelites would have thought back to the ten plagues that fell on the people of Egypt. And do you remember what the final plague, the second to last plague was before the final plague, which was God's judgment on the firstborn of Egypt and the Passover, the blood being placed on the doorpost? What was the second to last plague? Darkness. Darkness, the Bible says, that could be felt if you've ever been in that kind of darkness. And that darkness was for three days before God would pass through the land to execute judgment on those who were cruelly mistreating his people. Do you see this picture perhaps here? That God is showing up on the scene and his judgment is going to fall on whom? His son. His judgment. His sacrifice. His, if you will, holy anger will be falling on the head of his beloved son, and the world goes black. Wow. Here, Jesus experiences this darkness in silence, and notice what he says. And at the ninth hour, that's about three o'clock, three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, this, these words are provided in our Bible, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, because they were in Aramaic. That was what Jesus would have spoken these words in originally, and it is already interpreted, it is translated for us. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We have a window here into what Jesus was experiencing over these three hours. Now, for those of you who know your Old Testaments, you probably think, I've heard that word, before, that phrase before, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And in fact, you maybe have. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. And maybe this afternoon, after this sermon, you just go and open Psalm 22 and read it. And see how Jesus' sufferings on the cross were predicted. They were prophesied ahead of time by David's experience of suffering in that psalm. In fact, some of the same words that David uses in that psalm apply perfectly to Jesus and what he experienced on that cross. And Jesus was clearly meditating on that psalm. He was thinking about the Bible while he was suffering. And he lets out this cry, My God, why have you forsaken? me. Now there's some great significance here because for one Jesus never called God his God before. How did Jesus refer to God? Father. He had this relationship with him that he knew he was his beloved son and and, and God the Father was his Father in this Father-Son relationship. Now, Jesus cannot find in himself to use the word, My Father, My Father. All he can say is, My God, My God, the one I am submitting to, the one I am willingly obeying and following in this path that I do not out of grudging, not out of necessity, but I offer myself to My God, My God, My God. Why have you forsaken me? What does that mean when he says, why have you forsaken me? He means in a real sense 
that God was separated from God. And here's where I'm just going to have to say, I can't explain what I don't fully understand other than to say it's what Jesus experienced on that cross. That the Son of God, who was with God from eternity, from the very beginning, who was in fact God in that moment on the cross, felt no communion with God, no friendship with God, no sense of peace with God, no love from his Father from whom he had experienced nothing but love. You remember in the book of John that Jesus says, my father has never left me alone. Not once has my father left me alone from that sense of of communion and fellowship with him. Why? He says, because I do always those things that please him. Do you remember when, when Jesus was baptized? As he came up out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon him and a voice thunders from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Do you remember at the transfiguration when Jesus, his internal divine glory shines out of his body and his disciples fall on the ground like dead men and God himself testifies. He says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Listen to him. And now this beloved son who had pleased him so well experiences nothing but abandonment. I, I want to give you a picture. It's a very, very small picture, but maybe it will help. Maybe some of you growing up knew the experience of a parent, maybe a father or mother, who delighted in your accomplishments and achievements. I remember growing up, I always wanted to say to my dad, Papa, Papa, watch. Mom, watch. Watch what I'm going to do. And now, as my children grow up, when they master some skill, they want to make sure dad sees. And they experience that smile and that love. Oh, great job. And in a very small sense, that is exactly what Jesus had experienced from eternity. The Son of God. Always the smile of his Father. Always the delight of his Father. I am so pleased in you my son. And now, in the moment of his greatest suffering and his greatest trial as a result of our sin, he looks to his father. And instead of seeing a smiling face, he sees his father turn his back on him and say, I will not watch. Wow. That is what Jesus experienced on that cross. His father turning his back on his son, who was made sin for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, the people who were there, they didn't understand it. Look at verse 35. And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias or Elijah. That's the idea, Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed, a a stick, and gave him drink to drink, saying, let alone, let us see whether Elijah or Elias will come to take him down. These people hear Jesus saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and some of them think, well, he's calling for Elijah. They they misheard. They're going to see if Elijah is going to come almost as like his deliverer, the great Old Testament prophet. And so perhaps mocking, perhaps merciful, it doesn't say. They come to him and they take some of the sour wine vinegar 
that the soldiers would drink as a thirst quencher. And they put it on a, on, on a little plant or a little, a little stick and they bring it up to him. You, you want to part your lips? And then they sit back and say, okay, Elijah, are you going to come for him? Now, I see more mockery in this, frankly, than I do see true kindness. But whatever it is, they didn't understand what was going on on that cross. And so Jesus continues to suffer. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, friends, what does this mean for us? To realize the abandonment that Jesus experienced on that cross. What I think it signifies quite soberingly is what the judgment of God looks like. See, there is a reason, I think, that when Jesus was describing the people who are rejected from his kingdom who are left on the outside looking in, he says they are cast into outer darkness. There, is, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is why the book of Jude in verse 13 describes people who, who are abandoned to their own sin. And it says this, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Sometimes we focus on the the horrible reality of hell as as a lake of fire. And the Bible does say that, and Jesus himself says this. But what horror there is to think of the judgment of God as the darkness of abandonment. If you have ever been in the position of life where you wonder whether God has abandoned you, you feel like everything around you is only dark and black and there is nothing to see and there is nothing to know about whether God loves you, about whether he, whether, whether he has peace with you, whether you have a relationship with him. Now imagine not a question but a certainty that forever you are abandoned of God. That you are separated from him forever, from his love, from his goodness, from his grace, from his kindness. This is the judgment of God to those who choose to reject him. Who choose to turn away from the gift of his son. This is the judgment of a holy God against our willful rebellion against him. This is the teaching of the Bible. This is what Jesus experienced when he voluntarily accepted that judgment. When for three hours in that darkness, he experienced in a real sense what hell is for those who choose. Who choose that awfulness. It is the abandonment that Jesus experienced on that cross. And again... In what we do not understand, may we bow our hearts humbly to say, Jesus, thank you for experiencing what I cannot fathom. Secondly, let's look at what I'm going to call the acceptance. Do you see here in verse 37 as we continue? And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. Now that surely sounds like a very strange phrase to some of you. He gave up the ghost. I don't understand what that is. What we would say in in a modern idiom, we would say the phrase, he breathed his last. He gave his last breath. He he yielded his life. In fact, in, in the book of Matthew, this is very literally translated, he yielded up the ghost. He yielded up the ghost. There's something very interesting here, and I think the gospel writers want us to conclude that Jesus did not die when he had expended all his effort fighting. 
Most people didn't die after three hours on the cross or six hours on the cross. Some of them could last days. That's why they would go and sometimes break the legs of those prisoners so they would suffocate more quickly. The, the picture here, I think, is that Jesus willingly gave his life. He said, it's time for me to die, and he died. That's pretty unique, isn't it? But, but it's actually consistent with what the book of John says. In the book of John, chapter 10, it says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I, Jesus, laid down my life, that I might take it again. I lay down my life. I, I give it voluntarily. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. What a mystery. That Jesus' death, an execution, was Jesus voluntarily laying his life down. This was his acceptance of his death. And again, as I said, there are some skeptics today who would say some things like, well, this is divine child abuse. God the Father abusing his son Jesus. It was nothing of the kind. This was Jesus voluntarily, willingly, for the joy set before him, taking on your judgment, your punishment, my judgment, my punishment. This was Jesus accepting this great suffering for a purpose that he knew was a good one. So he cried out with a loud voice. He yielded up his life. He laid down his life. And notice then in verse 38, and the veil of the temple was rent, was torn in twain, ripped in two from the top to the bottom. Now, we don't have time to get into this in great depth other than to say this. If you go back into the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 26, you see the Old Testament provision for a veil, a big curtain, to be placed between what was called the holy place in the temple where the priests went, and the holiest place, literally the holy of holies. Now, in Jesus' day in the temple, there were multiple courts to that temple. There was the court of the Gentiles, where everyone could just walk through. Jesus cleaned out that area. You had the next court that only Jews could go into, the court of the women. Then you would have the holy place beyond that that the priests could go into. And then in a cube at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies. And it was a small room in which only once a year could someone go in, and only one person, the high priest, the high priest of the Jewish religion. And on that day, the Day of Atonement, or what today would be called Yom Kippur, one man, that high priest, would enter in to take a blood sacrifice, a blood sacrifice as an animal, and sprinkle that blood in that holiest place as a sacrifice so that God would look on the sins of his people and see a blood sacrifice made, and it would atone for those sins. And so in this picture, this separation, this curtain that only one man could go into on only one day of the year with a sacrifice, now Mark records and Matthew records and Luke records that this curtain was torn in half from the very top to the very bottom. Can you imagine 
fact, there are some people that that believe that at 3 p.m. this day was when Passover sacrifices were being made just at that time. And can you imagine what those priests would have thought at 3 p.m. as Jesus dies, that curtain separating the holiest place of their religion is now opened because the curtain has been ripped in half. Now, what is that saying? Well, what it's saying, certainly, the significance is that the whole temple system of worship described in the Old Testament is done. It's been fulfilled. There's no holiest of holies anymore. There are no needs for need for further sacrifices to make atonement for sins. There's been one sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. And now that Jesus has gone, if you will, into the presence of God, the holiest place of all, with His own blood as a sacrifice, God says, the temple system is fulfilled. There is no need, or as Jesus said, it is finished. The sacrifice has been made once for all. It is done. And can you think of those high priests and religious leaders who pursued Jesus to death thinking that they were winning a great victory? They didn't realize that in the death of Jesus of Nazareth, their entire system of religiosity would meet its final end. There was no need for a temple. There was no need for a veil. There was no need for a holy of holies. There was no need for animal sacrifices ever again. They had been completely fulfilled. But it means this too, friends. Don't miss this. When I say this is a story of acceptance, that Jesus was unique because it was an acceptance, the rending of the ripping of that veil was God signifying that the death of his son pleased him The death of his son he was accepting as a sacrifice. And what does it mean? It means now that access to God is open. It's available. The curtain separating us from the presence of God has been torn. There's no barrier anymore. There's no door standing in the way. It is to say this, if you want a relationship with God, your own relationship with God, you can have it. You don't need to go through a priest. You don't need to go through a family member. You don't need to go through a spouse. You certainly don't need to go through me. If you want a relationship with God, friend, this morning, you will have it. Oh, friend, if you grew up thinking that you needed to go through a priest to get to God, this verse tells you that's wrong. If you grew up thinking that you needed to come into a church building to have a relationship with God, to get a relationship with God, you got it wrong. If you grew up thinking that you had to come through and do these certain rituals and these certain performances in order for God to be pleased with you, that's wrong. Because in that moment, the death of Jesus Christ on that cross, God says, this is what I'm looking for. This is what pleases me. And forever, the curtain is torn and God says, come on. Come on in and get to know me based on the death of my son. This is why the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 says these wonderful words, having therefore, brethren, boldness, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, having boldness, 
Have you ever gone in a room to talk to someone that made you really nervous? Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a politician. Maybe it was an important person. And you walked into that room all on eggshells. And you said, I'm really nervous. My palms are sweating. My heart is beating. My knees are shaking. I don't know if they're going to accept me. I don't know if I have the right to be here. What if they, what if they call me a fraud and kick me out? If you've ever been that, you know that nervousness. And what Hebrews 10 is saying, not the Christian. You don't need to come trembling into God's presence as if your, 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 your hands are sweaty and your heart is beating. I don't know if he's going to accept me. No, what Hebrew says is, you come into the presence of God boldly. I should be here. I'm welcome here. I'm accepted here. Why? By the blood of Jesus. Not by any of my merit. Not because I'm a good person. No, I know well enough I'm, a, I'm not a good person. I'm a rebel against God at heart. But because Jesus made a perfect sacrifice, that means I can come into the presence of God with boldness and confidence. Friend, you know it would be a wonderful thing? Each time you kneel down to pray, you can say these words, Oh God, I come to you now by the blood of Jesus, and I know I'm accepted by you. I know I have access to you today. That's the significance of the veil of the temple being torn in two. There's no curtain between you and God. Not if you are willing to accept the blood of Jesus Christ as the sacrifice for your sin. What a truth. The abandonment, the acceptance, and finally the acknowledgement. I have to say this stirred my heart this week. I wonder how often we reflect on these words. Will you look at with me in verse 39? And when the centurion which stood over against him, which stood right before him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now, who's the centurion? This centurion was a Roman officer. He was a military officer who would govern a hundred men. Century, centurion, century 100, he would be ruling over 100 people. And this guy would have seen many people die. He probably would have, frankly, have killed people in the past. He had seen people crucified. He had seen people die in this humbling and in this torturous method. And when he saw Jesus die, he said, well, certainly, truly, for sure, This guy was different. This guy was the son of God. You say, what could have led him to that conclusion? You think the darkness had anything to do with it? Matthew tells us that when Jesus died, there was actually an earthquake. Mark doesn't record it for us, but Matthew does. You think that had anything maybe to do with it? Well, this guy, this is different. But notice what Mark focuses on. Mark says that when he saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost... What do you think that has to do? Well, imagine if you were someone who had seen many crucifixions and you saw how people died at crucifixions. They would die from suffocation. They would die from the pressure on their chest cavity of hanging on nails like that. How many people do you think that centurion saw who at the moment of their death shouted, 
having enough lung power to cry out, It is finished! And then to yield up his life, to take his last breath as if he was voluntarily giving his life. The centurion saw this guy didn't die like the other guys that I've seen. And something about the death of Jesus was a beam of light to him. We don't know how much he saw. We don't know whether he joined the Christian church. We don't even know for sure whether he was born again. But he saw something. And he said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now you say, what is Mark doing here? Why is Mark focusing on this? I think it's for this reason. He wants you to see something that he's been building to from the beginning of his story. How many of you remember where we started the book of Mark? Mark 1, verse 1. How does the book begin? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you know in Mark's account, not one person has called Jesus the Son of God to this point? Do you know in Mark's telling, the demons have said, surely you're the Son of God? But no man has to this point in Mark's telling. Do you know that Jesus was tried for being the Son of God? The chief priest, you remember, came to him and said, Tell us, are you the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, I am. That was the crime that he was on trial for. And so what do we see here at the end of the story? We see as Jesus dies, we might be tempted to think of it as a tragedy. But Mark says, don't look at it as a tragedy. Don't weep for him. This is a triumph. This is the triumph of one who voluntarily gave up his life and in the process, a hardened, jaded Roman military officer says, this guy's the son of God. And friend, I hope that for you, this morning you will see Jesus' death as a triumph. The voluntary, voluntary, willing death of one who gave his life, who laid it down as a sacrifice for your sin. And I hope that when you look at that cross this morning, you see this man as the Son of God, as the anointed one of God to come and give an acceptable sacrifice so that sinners like you and like me can have an open door to the presence of God and a relationship with God. Oh, friends, this death was unlike any other. It was entirely unique. And as I think back to this week and to those words of Abraham Lincoln that I read at the Gettysburg Address, he said that our resolve was that these should not die in vain. And friend, what a tragedy it would be if this most unique of all deaths was in a sense vain as to you because it did not lead to the forgiveness of your sins. It did not lead to the salvation of your soul. You say, how can I be sure that this death this sacrifice was accepted with God for me. 
Well, friends, we've seen it this morning. It is to believe that Jesus was abandoned by God so that you could be accepted. It is to acknowledge him as the son of God sent into the world for the salvation of your soul. It is to accept him as your sacrifice and substitute. I pray that not one person would leave here this morning without accepting Jesus Christ as their Savior and in love worshiping him for his very unique death.